Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. This episode is dedicated to Jenna Marie Gray in her memory and to the parents of Jenna, David Turpening and Belinda Gray. Welcome to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. I'm your host, David Clemen. Today, we have Teresa Clower on the show. She is the founder of Into Light Project. She's motivated by the death of her son, Devin, to an overdose of fentanyl. Teresa took up portrait work as a way of working through her grief. After completing Devin's portrait, she was inspired to find others who lived and died like her son and to show the extent of the drug epidemic through exhibits involving each state. She aspired to draw their portraits, tell their stories, and start a dialogue around the disease. We are grateful to have Teresa on the show. So yeah. why don't we start there? Why don't you tell me about your son, Devin, and then how you, what happened there and how you created this project that's in eight states and going into six more states. Is that correct? Well, we have, yeah, it it's various stages of negotiation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're, we have a goal of an exhibition in every state, but it began uh, four years ago, 2018. Devin died in February 2018. He was 32. Um, from a Dev was from a or is from a large family. There's seven children, a blended family. But he um, he was pretty much smack in the middle. And Dev um, personality, huge personality. We he was very tall, very thin. We called him. Well, while he was alive, we called him a praying mantis. But <laughs> but <laughs> after his death, um, he was coined an exclamation point. <laughs> and, and and that's that was his personality. He was he was very alive. Um, uh, Devin suffered from some anxiety, which was really not diagnosed as such, but um, it was evident that in social settings, he um, he became a either he was extremely funny and boisterous, and that's how he managed it, or eventually. He um, managed anxiety with an introduction to drugs by one of his friends. Mm -hmm. So um, he really struggled with that. Uh, he was very open after he became addicted. He came to us. He was in and out of um, most of them pretty lame facilities. Uh, he even did a stint for two years with the Scientology, which we didn't mm -hmm. know at the time, but he he was basically forced labor for a while. Um, so the whole recovery system did not work for Devin at all. Um, <clears throat> and eventually, after 10 years of in and out of facilities and trying so hard, which he did, um, he overdosed with some um, pills or I, I'm not even sure what else. I think there was heroin, fentanyl, mm -hmm. cocaine in this stuff. So he died in Baltimore mm. one night, cold night in February. Um, 
And <clears throat> his death, um, in a way, a way to process that for me was to get back into some graphite work that I had not done in 50 years. And I actually had never done a portrait. But mm. I always had wanted to get back into drawing when I got a little bit past the child rearing and a little closer to retirement. Um, and my daughter suggested a portrait of Devin. And of course, you being an artist, um, David, you realize it's a kind of a portrait made me gulp because it's <laughs> important that you get every, I mean, a, a split hair difference can make a difference. So, but I went about it um, and found it so healing and so um, moving. And it was my release, my goodbye to Devin when I signed my name on that. And I really did visit with him, every little nuance of his face, which, you know, when you look at a person, you don't necessarily see all of those minor things that make them who they are. But I was visiting with him. So that experience led me to um, a much deeper place, I thought. Well, and I was beginning to draw portraits all the time. I was just um, obsessed. And grandchildren. And then I eventually ended up just drawing people I'd see on the street. And I don't know what this, this push, this like drive to have to keep drawing and drawing. But um, it became sort of uh, empty in a sense that I was just, I was drawing, but it, there wasn't really any purpose in it other than my own pleasure, which a lot of people would argue, well, that's the only purpose. But I I felt like there got there maybe could be more to it. So um, the concept of of doing other people, drawing people who have died like Devin from addiction, and um, and then have a public discourse, have an opportunity for people mm -hmm. to see these folks. And original artwork, curiously, has impact that a photograph doesn't. It's um, it's powerful. And I've heard so many times over and over. So, so I thought, well, if I could, if I could set up an exhibition in Baltimore where Devin died and have it open to the public and just let's see. And I had no intention whatsoever of a national organization. I just was ready. And at that point, um, it, it was in early 2019 and I met Barbara. And she and I um, had not known each other before. She lives in this area. And we met. Um, she was incredibly encouraging. I said, I've got this sort of kernel of an idea. I don't even have a name for it, but, but here's what I'm thinking. And Barbara, I remember I brought a, a pot of lentil soup and some bread and we sat over a bowl of soup and just sort of hashed out this thing. And Barbara's comment was, you can't not do this. Mm. I mean, this is like, you can't not do this. <laughs> so we talked and talked and she listened and she had input. So she's really in my mind where the kernel of the idea might be in my head. She and I co-founded this and we began flushing it out and then we didn't even have anything we didn't have a website we didn't have any portraits other than the one I'd done of Devin and I didn't know anyone 
So it's kind of like a miracle that the whole thing started, but it was pure in uh, just insistence that it's going to happen. There was never a question about that. And cold calling people in Baltimore who I'd been given names of. And finally, you know, convincing 41 people in Maryland that this was a thing. And um, I had a little bit of money from the Maryland Arts Council. We had the right. Barbara decided she would be the narrative writer. And we had one other writer at the time. And we wanted stories, like you said. Yeah. So anyway, um, after that exhibit and there were. Oh, my goodness. There were 300 people or so at the opening alone. It was packed. Um, Every major media, every NPR, all the radio, all the TV stations came out. We did interviews. It was like, holy cow, you know, maybe we've hit on something here. Um, And then we started hearing from other people. When can this come? When can you do one in our state? So... Now we're in our eighth state and we do 41 portraits and narratives of 41 people from that state. So it's a unique exhibit every single time. Oh, sorry. What's the significance of 41? 41 at that time, this was 2019, represented the number of people who died every five hours from an overdose. There it is. But it's much higher now, Mm. much higher. And so there was a method to my madness. I mean, yes, it's an interesting number, but I wanted the media to ask the very question you just asked, Mm -hmm. because I wanted to make sure that they understood the magnitude of this. I I mean, I don't love it, but I, I I like the idea, the concept. Yeah. So that's where that is. And now it's many, many more die. Sure. Especially after the pandemic and the, you know, everything going on with yeah. fentanyl. Yeah. 108,000 last year mm. or in 2021. Um, so anyway, that is a long-winded way of saying this is how it started. And then since then, since Maryland, um, each state has taken on its own unique approach to this project. We bringing the bare bones, but then like in Florida and Orlando, we were in the uh, Orlando History Center. They started an oral history project. So families were recording their loved ones' stories and they're archiving them. And we're encouraging that throughout the country. San Bernardino has, it's in an anthropology museum for nine months, the exhibit's up and they have cases filled with memorabilia from the people that are in the show, which is incredibly powerful. And we have training. That's the other thing we really should talk about is education and how this project has morphed into something a lot more than just the gallery and the stories. It's it's really given an opportunity for major education. So school kids come to the gallery. University classes are held in the gallery. Um, EMS, first responders are getting training based on on humanizing so that's fantastic well i had a couple of thoughts i want to i want to get barbara in here but also i was i was thinking when you first started drawing you know since all three of us are artists and creatives at some point i just feel like we're kind of the conduit to whatever's 
the source energy or the universe or God. And so it just seems like you were kind of getting out of the way, but it was running through you, this, this drive, this obsession. And then I wanted to bring Barbara in here. Um, as far as the way you met, how did you meet? And what do you remember about that when you first met? Welcome, Barbara. Hi. Thank you. Yes. Um, Teresa and I sat next to each other at a Martin Luther King event. Mm-hmm. And um, we had friends in common. I used to live in this area before. And then she moved into the neighborhood I used to live in. <laughs> so those people are all our friends. And they kept saying, you need to meet Teresa. So we were sitting next to each other at this uh, dinner. And she said, I'm going to come over and see you. I have something to run by you. And I'm like, who's this woman? You know, I don't even know her. <laughs> but OK, sure. So she came over with a lentil soup and bread and, you know, sat down and told me her idea. And like she said, I said, you have to do it. You you can't not do this. You have to. It's a passion. I could feel the passion mm-hmm. he had for it. I, I could feel the energy around it and I wanted to be part of it. I told her I'd help her however I could. So I started out by being a board member, and then she asked me to write some narratives and interview some of the families. And I love storytelling. I learn a lot from storytelling. I I like to hear people's stories. You can statistics are helpful, but I really like the you know getting into why people do what they do and who they are and what their background is. And so I love writing the narratives. So it, the narratives is just another really nice touch to these stories besides the visual. How do you go about, do you, do you interview more than just the, the immediate family and friends or how kind of expansive is that, that process? It, yeah, it varies. Um, in the beginning, we, for Maryland, we interviewed, personally interviewed whoever submitted the person for the um, project. And I would call them up and spend time on the phone with them, asking them a bunch of questions that I developed that would help to extract information and open-ended questions. And I would type up all their responses and then use that information. Sometimes more than one person would be on that call. And I'd also look up obituaries and see if there's any information in there that might be useful, maybe do a little Facebook stalking just to see if there's <laughs> anything that I could learn, get to know the people. Over time, uh, we changed it a little bit to be that um, <clears throat> they could either have a phone call or they could fill out an online form with all the same questions. It's easier for me because of time and emotion and everything if they fill out the form, but not everyone can or wants to. And so I still interview some people, but I have to say, I get really into it. If they mention a song that they used to dance in the kitchen with their kid with, then I'll play the song. I'll dance in the kitchen, you know, I'll, I'll. I'll look up things that they tell me, like he was really into this one author. And I'm like, who is this author? What was this author about? Or this poet or, you know, any, any little hints they give me that kind of, that I can check out and get more information from just to get a a sense of who they were and what they liked. It really helps me to write the stories. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. 
Mm-hmm. So where Teresa, where are you now with the project and what's going on these days? And oh, but I wanted to back up and ask you this too. When you're going through a grief like that, did was it was the art more helpful or was it helpful to reach out to other families that had lost a loved one to an overdose or did you even know any other people? No, I didn't really know any other people that I uh, in Maryland. In fact, I haven't really known anyone, very few people. Um, so for me, the art was the 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 real um, and still is very meditative, mm-hmm. calming, um, centering. Um, you spend, you know, eight hours looking at an individual's eyes. You're gonna, you're gonna get to know their soul a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that has been the healing, and that's not to say the families and the response from the families and friends all over the country, because now we've done. Um, what is it about 350 almost 400 at least yeah and um and narratives and and so um the value that we have seen to the communities it's not just those that have lost people but to the communities mm-hmm. um has been incredibly rewarding and purposeful in my life and i know i can speak for barbara too that that has really, really been an, a wonderful offshoot. Um, I should mention too, David, that the project has gotten so heavy administratively. Um, you know, we're negotiating funding. All of this is free for the families. So we have mm-hmm. to find $50,000 every single time we go into a state. And we have to find partners and um, educational partners and um, submission, people who can help us with submission. So that part of it has grown to the point where Barbara and I are are managing it and keeping our hand in the art and the writing. But we have developed a team of national artists and national writers. And um, each of us has um, a growing number of people who we can pull from to help us um, in any particular state. That's great. And they're heavily vetted. They're heavily vetted because this is a passion project. And we want to make sure that these, um, the people that we use to um, be partners in the portraits and the narratives are, have the same mindset that we do about the project and the quality and the qualifications, obviously. Yeah. And so, with the admissions, I've been wanting to ask this. So you accept 41 for the exhibit. How many, what's, how do you choose out of, I mean, I'm sure you get more than 41. We have um, had more than 41. Um, we do a waiting list. It's a first come first serve with some okay. vetting. Um, we, we are mindful of diversity and it's an interesting situation because people of color are much more reticent to get involved in this project 
than um, others. And <clears throat> there's a good reason for that. And we've learned that over the years that um, when heroin was an inner city problem and many, many blacks were dying from overdose and, and use of heroin, no one cared. Mm. And once, once the drug epidemic started seeping into white suburbia, um, and started hitting in, in middle class to upper middle class, it became a thing. And <clears throat> so, excuse me. So we um, we have to go to a great deal of effort to find the diversity, but it's always a first, first come, first serve with some held back. So we make sure we get some people of color, um, whether it's whether it's Latino, Black, um, Indigenous, Asian. Um, but we we definitely try to work for that. So it's it's really not as as uh, selective, if you will, right? Because we we feel strongly that everyone has value. So it would be hard for us to choose one over another. It's it would be more like an eeny meeny miny mo, I think, because everyone yeah. is valuable. Yeah, and the thing about what you just said is that diversity is important because. Addiction doesn't discriminate. It just doesn't. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how much you have, how little you have, none of it. It yeah. just, it, it covers the gamut of type of person. And uh, so I, I'm grateful to hear that you look for the diversity. I mean, and, and give these different folks and their families a voice and just to, to you know, let others know that this person was alive and lived and and had interest, you know. Right. Right. Go ahead, Barbara. Some of the stories are amazing. I mean, what people have accomplished or the talents and abilities that they have. And it's it's really sad to know that that's lost to the world. You know, they just have so many gifts and and they're not going to be ever being able to be part of the fabric of our life. Yeah. Well, what I'm, is the, I'm, go ahead, I'm, Teresa. If I could just add to that, I'm sure. also um, saddened by the, the fact that addiction um, has robbed us of this skill and this talent that Barbara talks about, but often people, and I can attest to this from my own son, the highly creative risk takers in our society are so important to um, to our creative growth and our innovation. And many, many of these young people who have that skill set of creativity and innovation and risk are dying. I mean, we're losing a huge resource in our culture as a result of of drugs. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just for me as an artist, I can only speak for myself, but when you spend so much of your life with the pencil or pen in hand or the paintbrush and, and you're just working and you're trying to figure out and be that conduit and then you put it out there and not much happens necessarily. And maybe it's not celebrated and you keep working you keep working you do something else. It can get very, it can get a little defeating sometimes as an artist, but sure. you, you press on. And so if there's not an outlet for that type of person, 
it can be a little disheartening, you know, yeah. and, and it's not always celebrated. So I understand. Yeah. So and I wanted to ask, up, go oh, ahead. Sorry, that brings up another point about how this project is art activism. I think that's a very important part that, you know, this is active art activism, truly, because when people come in, we're trying to, they come in to see the portraits and the narratives and know a little bit about the topic, but from the comments that we get and the feedback that we get, we are changing hearts and minds about who people with addiction are. They're your neighbors, your friends, your family, they're everybody. And Mm -hmm. um, perceptions are changing after seeing one of our exhibits and interacting with it. I love it. I wanted to ask you about, well, two questions. As far as the fundraising, I know you probably work with some corporations to get a, the bigger donations to get to the 50,000. But I notice on your website, you have a shop as well. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, that was an offshoot of, of um, the exhibitions. It's basically our, our shop sells reproductions of each portrait and catalogs. We put together a beautiful, perfect bound catalog of each show. Uh, with all the portraits, all the narratives. In fact, Nora Volkow, who is the director of NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse at, at NIH, um, is a real supporter of this project. She wrote the introduction for our catalog. Um, but that that shop is really where we sell um, reproductions for families and friends who want to give them as gifts and the catalog. Um, but it, it, we make a little bit of money doing that, but certainly not not enough to cover the cost of, of the next <laughs> sure. edition. So, yeah. Is there a donate button on the, I guess, the support and to light yeah. uh, bar? Sure. Okay. It's, it's all over the website. <laughs> okay, and, and yeah, we, and I'm going to, I'll put all that in the webs. Thank uh, the you. Notes. Mm-hmm. We, we have the opportunity to become a one-time donor or a sustaining member is even better for us. Because, you know, this is not going away. Our goal is a a unique exhibition of 41 people in every state. And then at the end of this century, and and Barbara and I are both in our mid, almost mid-70s now. But 71, come on. Well, I'm pushing 73 this year, so I'll stay (laughs) on. But anyway, um, what... I'm always a year ahead of myself. (laughs) But my point in that, David, is we're committed to this project, um, taking it through every state with the the exhibitions. It's a huge and bold project. And then over 2,000 portraits and narratives combined at the end. We're archiving all of this stuff at the end of it because the originals are given to the families. But and that's a gift to the families. But we keep the the all the narratives, all the portraits, and they will combine in a huge multimedia exhibition at the end of the century, much in the spirit of the AIDS quilt. And we want to document like no other that we're aware of organization is putting a human face on on addiction in this day and age. So, you know, that's where we're heading. We we, um, we have. We work with some corporations. We work with with health departments. We work with any any kind of entity to try and raise whatever we can. And that's that's the the toughest part. But we're doing it. So far, we've done it. And if we don't, Barbara and I volunteer. 
We don't like to volunteer. I mean, we can't afford to volunteer, but we do it, right? Right. We yes. still have to make a living. So that's right. We've given just up our day jobs, um, <laughs> so to speak. So just to clarify, it's not the end of the century, end of the decade. I don't think well, we're going to say century. <laughs> right, right. End of the decade. Right. God, at the end of the century, we'll be long gone, Barbara. <laughs> I will leave it. Uh, yeah, we'll all be. You know what? We'll I mean. be wrapped up. You know so I, I wanted mean. to ask both of you, as far as the exhibit goes, you know, this isn't a light subject matter for art activism. I want to I want to get both of your feelings or experiences with this. What is the vibe like the night of the opening? How is it somber or is it a celebration? I'll start with you, Barbara. I think it's some of both. Some people are just so grateful. In fact, all the families are just really grateful that that their loved one is being portrayed with such dignity in a professional gallery that's just beautiful. And, you know, they didn't get this in their life. And so they feel really honored. A lot of people cry. There's a lot of hugging. Mm. So it's really some of both. And and I think people celebrate the fact that finally they can hold their head high and say, my loved one mattered. And now people know it. So. I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Teresa? Well, I would agree. There's um, there's a whole, well, well, one mother, this kind of sums it up. One mother in Baltimore walked up and she said, this is the first time since my daughter died that I can hold my head high. Mm. And she was honest about, you know, but many of her friends, she was unable to really talk with. Um, truly talk with what was going on. And and we had close friends, supposedly close friends, and we never even talked about Devin's problems. I also felt like it was Devin's place to talk. Um, but so, so those that do submit and participate in this project, we see them as very much a part of the story because without their support, and their willingness to share their stories, this wouldn't happen. And the fact that they're doing that takes, in a lot of cases, a lot of strength that they didn't didn't have before. So I would agree 100% with Barbara. It's a, a mixed, celebratory, emotional, powerful time. Every single opening has been that way. It's uh, It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I just I can imagine how it would, you know, you would people would take the time to read the narrative. Now, is the narrative put underneath the portrait? Right along the side of it. Okay. They're usually on vinyl and affixed to the wall surrounding the portrait. And then we also have a gifting gathering at, at, at the end of the exhibit, which is open only to the families. And that one is extremely emotional and meaningful mm-hmm. because that's when they're gifted the catalog and the portrait and the exhibit is coming to an end. And is that on closing night? Do this how long do the exhibits stay up? It varies. Anything from I think the shortest we had during the pandemic was three weeks. Mm-hmm. The longest we have is at San Bernardino, Cal State, and that's nine months. A typical 
We like them up long because the longer that an exhibit holds, then the more programming, educational programming can happen. So there's lots and lots of gallery, you know, meetings inside the gallery, discussions. Uh, but so we like long, long stands. Um, but I would say a minimum really now would be probably six weeks. It, it, they're major, really. I mean, yeah. The the exhibits are major efforts on the part of the museum. They're professionally done, professionally hung. The supporting information, the panels around the room, everything takes a huge amount of effort. So um, keeping it up for the public is really a, a wonderful thing. It's fantastic. So I want to shift into what do you think about the fent- all the fentanyl overdoses now? What what would you like to see happen as a, as a parent that lost a son? Yeah. To, to um, this, I mean, because we you know we all know it's a problem, and I'm sure we all have ideas. I just want to hear what you would like to see. Right. Hopefully, I would like this the the emphasis to be shifted from the criminal system to the medical system. Mm-hmm. Addiction is a medical problem. It it has no um, no place in the um, law enforcement. Other than I would agree that that those distributing major amounts of of drugs need to be dealt with. And I'm so that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying someone like my son needed help, mm-hmm. medical help. Um, so I would like this to be normalized. So it is a medical condition that anyone who's suffering from it can come to their doctor, their loved ones, and not be stigmatized. And we're seeing even medical professionals still hold a great deal of stigma. Uh, EMS and first responders hold a lot of stigma. So I, I'd like that to happen in terms of um, of support. I would. I'm also a believer in in safe spots and safe places that have proven to be. If someone is suffering from this disease, if we want to call it a disease, I know there's a debate about that, mm-hmm. but it is a medical condition, mm-hmm. and if they're suffering from that and can in some way protect their life while they're trying to get the medical help that they need, then, then we need to, to head in that direction. So those are my, um, those are my feelings about it. What about you, Barbara? The original question was about fentanyl. Yeah. Just like, what would you, what would you hope that the project helps with, or where would you like to see all this going? Well, I I think awareness is at the bottom of about everything. If people aren't aware of what the issues are and who is dying from this and that they're regular people and that they're not other than or throwaway people, as we've heard many times, then, you know, people start to shift their attitudes. And it's going to take a lot of doing that before people buy into the fact that a people who have substance use disorders are worth saving and that their life is worth something and that they matter to all of us so i i guess education and awareness and 
changing attitudes and beliefs. And we have a tagline changing the conversation about addiction. And we need to have conversations. We need to bring it into the light, which is, you know, kind of a metaphor for what we do both in graphite and in the title. It there's a lot of people who just don't know. And there's a lot to have, you know, those common stereotypes and I think media is another thing that I've been really noticing lately, the way people are depicted in the media is just deplorable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just, you know, junky informants or something in a police show. And that's not who people are. Right. They're, They're everything. You know, we're not one dimensional and we shouldn't be. So... I I guess education is at the top of the list Mm -hmm. and certainly with all the fentanyl, um, we don't want to get too off of, off of our mission. You know, we don't want too much mission creep, but we do talk about fentanyl in our panels, in the displays, in the museum, because now one pill can kill you. Mm -hmm. One of anything can kill you. And we've had had many people, there's several in the California exhibit that took one pill and they're gone and they were 14 and Mm. 17. And so we need to make sure that people are aware and educated. Yeah. Yeah, it's devastating. But the beautiful thing of what you're doing is that you're this art activism and, and telling the stories and sharing with others and educating and changing conversation and putting a face to the name. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Is there anything before we we're almost out of time, but we still got a few more minutes. Um, anything else you'd like to share about the projects, uh, you know, with the audience, Teresa? One thing I would like to, if we can weave it in here, David, Sure. we depend on <clears throat> communities to help us identify, uh, venues, locations, um, around the country. And if there's a way that that if any one of your audience has connections within their communities, either we, we often go to universities and colleges for their gallery space. And that's nice because they have the educational component and mm-hmm. the population that we're very interested in approaching. Um, but we've also been in, in history centers, anthropology centers, Um, You know, so helping us identify state by state uh, would be great. They could reach out to to me at the on our website. There's a contact tab Um, that would be most helpful. We're looking and I'd be remiss in saying we're obviously looking for people who are committed to our mission and who can help us, even if it's a five dollar a month sustaining member, it would be wonderful. Um, because that every dollar of that goes toward mm-hmm. helping with this this project, every single penny. So it's um, those are the biggest struggles, and we really do depend on the communities to help us. And I think too, we could mention that we have ambassadors in each state. So if there's someone who is very interested in bringing this to their state and wants to help us do the groundwork to, you know, make it happen. Um, We have, we, 
we see if they can be an ambassador for us in that state because we can't go everywhere, fly everywhere, sure. check everything out. So, yeah, if anyone is interested, they could contact us. Awesome. Yeah, there's uh, the website's really it's very clear. You can kind of navigate it easy. You can see the portraits. You can see the narratives. You can see the team. You can donate. You can go to the store. So I encourage everyone to go to it into lightproject.org. And um, before we leave, I want, I always ask people what their recovery nuggets are. So this one's a little different, but I also, you know, for a family member who's lost someone, I mean, what would you like to share with people today, Teresa? I, I, I think that anyone who's listening, either who is maybe even in recovery or has lost someone to recovery, um, they're part of our extended family. And I mean that sincerely because we all have experienced to some degree or another um, either the loss of, of someone or the struggle of someone. And so reaching out if if they're interested in more information. I mean, I obviously um, we can use everyone. We can use anyone who's sincerely um, interested in in seeing this conversation change. Um, so ideas. Um, but I would say too that for me, finding a purpose in my life after Devin died, uh, even though we have a wonderful, big, warm, loving family, there was a huge hole there for me. Mm. And so I think if if someone listening has lost a loved one and feels that empty, um, gnarling kind of feel, um, finding a purpose, even if it's just a small, um, a small effort, um, that made a big difference for me. And um, I hope that others can find a, a piece in the same way. Yeah. Thank you, Teresa. What about you, Barbara? Do you have any recovery nuggets you'd like to share? I think it's important that everyone educate themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that um, about the the true essence of substance use disorder, not just categorize people and buy into old stereotypes. Um, I think that they we could change our language so that we're not stigmatizing people that we're careful around about what we say and how we say it so that people don't feel like they can't reach out for help. So I, I think those are the, the basics. <clears throat> oh, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We've been a real pleasure. You're getting back in touch with me too. So oh, take definitely. Care. Okay. Take Good care. Bye. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Get in touch with the show via Instagram at Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Also, the email is recoverynuggetspodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Thank you for showing up for your recovery today. Recovery Nuggets Podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I'm not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experience, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Thank you.